Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the Department of Health Management and Policy here at the University of New Hampshire, and today I'm pleased to share with you a special episode of The Forge. On October 7th, the College of Health and Human Services and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives hosted a special event at the University of New Hampshire, Shaping the Future, Leadership and Public Policy in Healthcare. We had two panels and a keynote speaker, and it was a terrific event. You are listening to the first panel, Talent Management for Bench Strength Development. This panel included Samantha O'Neill, the Vice President for Human Resources at the Elliott Health System in Manchester, New Hampshire, Kevin Callahan, the President and CEO of Exeter Health Resources in Exeter, New Hampshire, and Warren West, the CEO of Littleton Regional Healthcare and CEO of the North Country Healthcare in Littleton, New Hampshire. I had the privilege of moderating this panel. The recordings of the other parts of the event are available on our website, healthleaderforge.org. And now, please enjoy Shaping the Future. Good morning. It's great to have everybody here on, on our campus. My name is Mike Ferrara, and I serve as Dean at the College of Health and Human Services. And uh, this conference that we're having today in Shaping the Future, Leadership and Public Policy in Healthcare has been a priority for us. Uh, one of my strategic priorities, strategic initiatives for the college is to reach out to, to the community and for us to be partners with everybody. And I would like to thank the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives for being a great partner with us. We want to work together with the community, whether it be a local hospital, community service agency, nonprofits, etc. And it's just a wonderful opportunity for the college. I'd also like to thank our students for being here today. Today's part of your journey as you move into be becoming professionals is part of your educational program. And please network with everybody here today. It's just a, it's a great opportunity. Just some quick notes about the College of Health and Human Services. We're made up of eight different departments. Uh, we have health management policy, which is being featured today, uh, social work, early childhood education, kinesiology, occupational therapy, communication sciences and disorders, rec management and policy, and nursing. In nursing, we offer degrees from bachelor's through DMP or doctor of nursing practice. We have two institutes as part of the college. We have the Institute on Disability, and you'll see a lot of folks associated today from the Institute of Health Policy and Practice. I'd like to introduce our leader of this, uh, this event. This has been a vision of Mark's. And when he brought this idea to us, probably in the spring, I said, this is a great opportunity. Let's pursue it. And Mark has been a leader in reaching out to the community. He has a Health Leaders Forge podcast, and I uh, advocate that you uh, get on there where he's uh, interviewed leaders uh, throughout greater New England. And it's just a wonderful series, and, and in particular for our students. It's a way for you to listen to leaders and how they got to where, they've, where they are now. And I think Mark has interviewed close to 20 folks, 25 folks, 40 folks. So it's, it's an impressive array. Of, of information. Uh, Mark serves as an assistant professor in our Department of Health Management and Policy. He joined our faculty in 2015 after serving 23 years in the Army Medical Department of, in a variety of operations and administrative services. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark and thank you. Good morning. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to moderate this first panel which is called Talent Management for Bench Strength Development. 
And during this panel, we're going to be talking about succession planning and leadership development. And to do that, we've assembled uh, three executives who are really fascinating individuals from three different health systems with a diversity of experience and representing the geographic diversity of northern New England. And so let me briefly introduce our panel. You do have a more extensive biography about each of them in, in your handout here. But I'd like to tell you why I chose each of these individuals. So starting with Sam O'Neill. Sam is the Vice President of Human Resources for the Elliott Health System. And I've had the opportunity to listen to Sam speak a couple of times. And I asked her to join us this morning because as the Vice President of, of Human Resources for one of the largest hospitals in the state, she brings an extensive knowledge of challenges facing talent management in healthcare today. And what's really unique about Sam is she also brings talent management experience in high tech and manufacturing fields to the table, which I thought might be interesting for some comparison points today. Kevin Callahan is the president of Exeter Health Resources. I've had the opportunity to interview Kevin for the Health Leader Forge podcast, and it continues to be one of my favorite interviews. I asked Kevin to join us today because he served as the president and CEO of Exeter Health Resources since 1985. And this gives him a unique perspective on shaping talent and the talent structure within his organization, as well as responding to healthcare ch the changes in healthcare environment. And finally, Warren West. Warren is the CEO of Littleton Regional Healthcare and the CEO of North Country Healthcare. As a CEO with an extensive experience with critical access hospitals, Warren brings to the discussion experience with the challenges of critical access hospitals operating in rural communities. Also in my podcast interview series with several healthcare executives, Warren has come up as a significant career mentor for two other CEOs that I've actually interviewed. So I look forward to asking him about mentorship there. Now, I've prepared some questions for the panelists, which they have had the opportunity to preview. We'll be working with those questions for the first half of the panel, and then we'll open up the floor for questions from you all. There'll be two students moving around with, with mics, so when that time comes, if you just raise your hand, they'll come to you with the mic. And just for your situational awareness, we're recording the event, and it will be published on in audio on the Health Leader Forge podcast sometime in November. So without further ado, let me start the questions, and we're going to start with Sam. And I've been told my questions are were clearly written by an academic, so they're going to, they were giving me a little bit of a hard time before, before the panel started. So I told them, just, you know, answer this question or, or whatever else you might want in the spirit of, like, the presidential debates that we've been having. So, so one of the implications of the title of this panel is that organizations are thinking about succession planning and building a bench of people who could step into the higher, excuse me, step into higher level roles. So Sam, what's the difference between leadership development and succession planning? And why does an organization need to be thinking about both? Okay, great. I hope everybody can hear me in the back. Um, so succession planning is looking at your entire organization at all different levels throughout the organization, different departments, um, different units to make sure and to look at where you have your strength and where you have weaknesses in area of opportunity. So, for example, um, we're just rolling this out in our finance department now. So I usually start when I do succession planning, looking at the, uh, the leadership of the organization within finance and then all the way down. So if we start with the vice president, then we look at the director level, then we look at the manager level. And what we do is we look at who are people that are ready to retire, how many years out, um, what are people's uh, strengths and weaknesses within that particular department? Um, where do you find, do you have anybody that could step up in two years or three years? That's the succession planning. So you're looking to see the strengths and weaknesses of not just the organization, but within each department. And then you look at the entire organization as a whole. 
with leadership development, um, I've been in HR for over 20 years, and I've been in a leadership role probably 15 of those years. And it doesn't matter how long you've been a leader, but you always you always grow. You always need to tweak what you're doing, learn new opportunities, look at different things from a different way. So within the Elliott, we have um, a lot of opportunities for leadership development. We have Elliott University, which is taught by uh, members of senior leadership and directors within the organization. There's um, on-site classroom training that are taught by members of human resources and various directors, um, and then online classes. So. The, the difference between the succession planning and leadership development is leadership development is really developing the leaders. Succession planning is making sure that you have opportunities for not just your leaders, but all employees in the, in the organization for growth for the next level um, in, in making sure that you can really cover all aspects of positions. So let me pass this to Kevin um, at Exeter. Uh, do you have a formal process for for succession planning and for leader development? Uh, we do. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, probably a large part of the time that I spend, um, or a significant part of the time that I spend, is in fact focused on um, leader development, succession planning. It's not an insignificant part of my thought process throughout any given year. Um, from a succession planning uh, uh, perspective, we are particularly focused on that, uh, given some of the generational changes that we're expecting to see occur in, in healthcare delivery. Um, older people are getting older, and uh, younger uh, uh, people are looking to enter into the workforce. And so we have to anticipate those changing um, uh, scenarios in which we've got not insignificant retirements occurring, occurring and with that, um, significant uh, loss of uh, skill sets leaving the organization, experiential. Uh, skill uh, skills that have been developed, as well as organizational wisdom that departs with someone who's worked uh, within the organization. Equally as importantly, then, so you don't drop the balls that any leader is juggling a lot on a day-to-day -day basis, how do you incorporate uh, new people into your organization to be able to, if you will, carry the fire forward in terms of the success of an organization and being able to bear the, um, the values that an organization has and the culture that an organization has and bear those forward. So we spend a lot of time looking at succession planning. Uh, and even just recently, uh, there are, I've made some changes in my executive leadership ranks from the standpoint of physician development and physician leadership. Uh, and had also worked with an individual by way of example as a targeted senior executive leader. Uh, when he first came into our organization as a physician, I started working with him nearly seven years ago. And so we think a lot about the long-term prospects for leadership uh, that may emerge in our organization. Related to leadership development, it is an ongoing process. I can't think of an organization that neglects its leaders. I think the difference is largely, from a development standpoint, I think the difference largely is how much effort does an organization spend on leadership development. Uh, and, and obviously, from small to, uh, to large organizations, the resources and commitments to leadership development may vary. But nonetheless, it is hard-pressed to think of any organization that has had any modicum of success that is at least not thoughtful about leadership development. And from there, you can expand your base of sophistication in terms of continuing education. Uh, uh, the work that we do in terms of leadership identification, we do it annually. We survey leaders 
every year to try to understand deficits that may exist in their, their leadership profile. We correspond uh, those, uh, those surveys with actual performance in the organization, how the, or the organization actually is performing under their leadership. We also correlate those to peer reviews. And ultimately, for all our leaders in the organization, it is about a conversation that we have to have with every leader in an organization to try to understand what their aspirations are and ultimately what they want to achieve in the next year, two years, three years from a leadership development and capability perspective. So it's a very active process. Um, you can't deliver healthcare. You can't deliver any product in any economy, whether it's an American economy or any other international or any other country uh, across, across the globe without effective leadership and without thinking about how your leaders need to evolve in a rapidly evolving world. Warren, let me, let me ask you, can you give an example of position or positions that you uh, are actively planning in terms of succession and concern about succession planning? Um, <clears throat> pretty much at all levels we work on, and there's not one particular position. In small hospitals, so when I talked to Sam, I said, so how many staff do you have? She said, 4,000. I said, well, that's a different league, right? We have about 500 employees, and we sort of, from day one with a new employee, we talk about where you want to be, focus on today's job, but keep your eyes open for other jobs. Because in our hospital, we want people to grow internally. We don't have a dramatic workforce up there, right? So we have we tend to promote from within. Um, <clears throat> So at all levels, we have mentor relationships. We always talk about to our department heads, how are you going to build your bench? Uh, so we talk about constantly how to build your bench um, because things transition, the institution gets larger, people do tend to move on, and we can't always recruit from outside. So between the mentoring programs we have in place, leadership development that we do on a quarterly basis, and quite frankly, the day-to-day -day mentoring that all of our team does, and it's for all of our employees because of the personal touch, because of the size we are. Um, it's just ingrained in our culture to have that mentoring program to always try to figure out how people can continue to move up. So there's no one particular position. No, no okay. Um, Sam, you mentioned a particular department. You were said working in finance. Is this a program that you're expanding across the Elliott? Is it something that's been in place for a while? Um, it's oh. actually new. So I've been at the Elliott for about two and a half years, and we didn't really have a formal succession succession program. So, and that's something, um, like Kevin had said, you really need to make sure that you have that in place because people come, people go, people retire, people are looking for additional challenges. So you want to make sure that you can cover that. So um, we started with nursing a couple years ago. I started with the CNO. We sat, and I do what's called a nine-box succession planning, and it really looks at um, those that are um, performing where they should, those that are your key performers that are going to be um, promoted or could be promoted within a couple of years, those that are ready to be promoted, those that are looking to retire. So you, what you do is you, you, I hate to use the word categorize, but you categorize an employee, but it's the skill set. And one of the hardest things to do with succession planning is being totally objective. Um, making sure that you're looking at the skills of the person, not whether you like the person or you don't like the person or you've had um, a, a challenging interaction with them. So we started with nursing, we started with the CNO, and then we worked through the executive nurse leadership team. 
Um, so I assign everybody homework because you have to look at each individual person. And then what you do is you get into a room and you talk through the talents of that um, of each individual one at a time. And it's not just the person that that individual reports to, it's the entire team because you're looking at how do they interact and what is their skill set, not only in their area, but within other areas, cross-function, communication, and so forth. So you look at that and then you look to see, do you have a lot of overachievers? Do you have five or six people that are looking to retire in three years? Do you have somebody who has a unique skill set that if that person were to leave, that leaves a big hole in the organization. So we started with nursing. We're, I do it within HR all the time. Um, and now we're moving to finance. So it's a, it's a long process, but we're starting to move throughout the entire organization. Did you see that in other industries? Did you learn this process in other industries? And what does it, is there a difference between the way we do it in a healthcare facility from your experience either in, in, in manufacturing or in high tech? So I um, had worked at Velcro prior to coming to Elliott, and um, we did succession planning there. It's the same process. The skill sets are different, um, and the knowledge and the expertise is different. So it's really um, taking that same skill, taking that same succession planning process and moving it to different industries. But it, it's pretty much the same. Kevin, you mentioned a second ago that you identified a physician executive uh, some years ago that, and you were going to prepare him to kind of step up into an executive role. So you've identified, when you identify someone as being part of your succession plan, what's next? What, what do you actually do with that person? The uh, physician that I identified as uh, uh, entering into executive leadership subsequently did, and then he ultimately ended up going to California. <laughs> so I was set back a few years uh, in that process. I don't, so I don't, I'm not sure whether it would be categorized uh, successfully or as a success or not, although my expectation would be in the instance of this particular physician, he will ascend into a leadership role somewhere else in this country and will have not an insignificant impact on the way healthcare is delivered in that community. So I think that will probably be successful uh, ultimately. And so what I try to think about um, are how do we create opportunities uh, for leaders in our organization or aspiring leaders in our organization to broaden uh, their experiences, to take risks, uh, to take personal risk uh, in terms of um, making decisions that have consequence beyond their comfort zone, to progressively expose them to different parts of the organization, whether it's at the senior executive level or at the operational level or at the clinical level, in the case of the physician, obviously well experienced at the clinical level, but not particularly well um, uh, exposed to the different manage management processes that can occur in a complex organization. And I think it's true um, when you think about uh, any complex organization, um, regardless of what they're involved with, manufacturing, service, or healthcare delivery, frequently the people that are in the environment can only see so deep below the surface of the water to understand the complexity of the processes that are occurring. And when they're exposed to those processes in a deeper way, it is eye-opening for them. 
And so what we try to do for um, potential leaders in our organization that might ascend to a position a year, two years, five years into the future is to try to create opportunities for exposure to other parts of the organization. If they are, um, uh, if there's a view that in fact they would be um, benefited by advanced training, to have them support them uh, in that advanced training, whether it's at the graduate level, additional graduate work, doctoral work, whatever the case might be. We have also, in some cases, uh, circumstances, also arranged for them to have cross uh, uh, other industry exposure uh, to see if we can create opportunities for them to observe, to participate, to men be mentored in some ways, perhaps by someone else from another industry. Um, in a similar way to what Warren was alluding to, we're not a large organization. We have a, about 2,000 employees in our organization. We don't have multiple locations around the globe. Uh, let alone around the country, and for a lot of country, uh, for a lot of companies, uh, the ability to move uh, uh, leaders or aspiring leaders to ascending levels of responsibility throughout the country, or operating divisions, or other parts of the globe, is a huge um, a development opportunity uh, and an intensive one for a lot of these individuals. So healthcare is a little constrained, at least um, uh, in terms of smaller organizations uh, uh, such as my own. But we try to create those opportunities where we can. Warren, as I mentioned in my introduction, one of the reasons I asked you to join us today is because you had been mentioned so uh, as, a, as an influence by two other um, executives that I've spent some time with, both Peter Wright, who's now the CEO of Valley Regional Healthcare, and Robert Mock, who's now the CEO of, of Select Medical, uh, named you as a significant mentor who helped them develop uh, their careers as leaders. Um, both of these gentlemen were promoted from within the organization you were leading at the time. Um, and I think your, your relationship with them is a good example of you know, bench strength development. How do you go about identifying talent such as Peter or uh, Rob uh, in your organization? Uh, and when you've identified that leadership talent, what do you do different? What do you do differently with them? Um, with those two individuals, um, both of them told me they wanted my job. And quite frankly, I love people when they say, I want your job. That gives me a great motivation to help them get my job in some fashion. Um, and both of them were in the institution. Um, Peter actually worked with me at two different institutions. Um, so what do we do different? Um, I try to get them out of their comfort zone. You know, they might know this area of expertise, but I want to get them out into the institution. I want them to get exposed to different people. I want them to get exposed to different projects on an ongoing basis so they can grow their knowledge, quite frankly, so they can grow their resume. Um, and so that's normally how we do it, with a special project that they either volunteer for or I volunteer them for, um, based on what I think their strengths and weaknesses might be. Um, we meet, probably with these guys, I met, my door's always open because it is a small institution. They can come in and problem solve with me at any point in time, but formally once a week, go over what they're working on, special projects they're encountering. Um, a lot of times, right, you want to let them learn the hard way, but you don't want to let them get in too much trouble, um, but you really want them to sort of take a leap across, across that canal um, and see what's on the other side and not always guide them. But you want to be able to bring them back and sort of ground them um, through dialogue, through discussion. Um, we talked earlier, Kevin did, about taking risk. You want them to take risk. Um, they're going to, and I don't mean to pick on these two guys, but 
you brought them up. They're gonna they're gonna fail at some point in time, and you got to accept that. You just hope it's not that big. And then you ask them about the knowledge. What did you learn, and what will you do differently? And you just sort of build them through that kind of. I call, it's informal because it's such a small institution, but that's what we do. And uh, obviously, very proud of both of those individuals, um, and they're doing great. Sam, do you have a formal process at at the Elliott? or in your prior organizations where you go about identifying potential talent? We do. Um, it's, right now, it's, it's a work in progress. So it's, it's really informal moving to a more formal process for, um, you know, through the succession planning process, through some of the um, new leadership development programs that we're going to now. We have, um, we're just rolling out, uh, we piloted it a couple, uh, couple months ago, an individual development plan. Uh, for managers and above. So it's really looking at where you feel your strengths and weaknesses are, where you feel you want to grow, and then have coaching uh, sessions with your manager or director or vice president to be able to come up with a plan to get you um, from where you are to where you want to go. So it's it's not as formal as we'd like it to be, but it's, it's a work in progress. Kevin, um, we talked a little bit about mentorship when, when I interviewed you. How important is mentorship in your organization, how do you ensure that mentorship is going on at not just at your level, but kind of at, at all levels? Um, I think probably all of us in this room at one point in time have mentored by somebody. I don't mean parented. I mean mentored uh, by someone. And you can't um, in any way underestimate the importance of that. The mentoring can be intensive. Um, it can be subtle. Um, but nonetheless, somewhere along your pathway, someone has had a, an impact on you uh, in a positive way. We, as an organization uh, that provides health care, uh, which is maybe at its core one of the most quintessentially intensive human endeavors that you can imagine, uh, largely predicated on human relationships between patient and caregiver and also colleagues uh, that are uh, organized around delivering patient care. And so when, if you think about the essence of a human relationship and the importance of um, guidance in that relationship and the importance of trust in that relationship, you begin to understand how mentoring within an organization can help guide people through uh, their development as individuals from a leadership perspective, but also help them through the, the vagaries of life that occur in any one career in any one organization. So we uh, have an expectation of leaders that are in place currently. Those are individuals who are currently formally designated as leaders, and I'll get to informal leaders in a moment. Uh, these are individuals who it is a clear expectation uh, when they are hired and when we develop them on an ongoing basis that they will in fact mentor those who um, uh, work with them and also create opportunities for them to mentor their colleagues. This becomes particularly important if you've got a leadership group that perhaps has had some experience in terms of tenure in an organization. I wouldn't quite say typically they've seen it all, but frequently they have seen it all. And the importance of organizational experience, the organizational wisdom, if you will, to help mentor new talent, new individuals coming into an organization, to help shepherd them through the uncertainties, the conflicts, it can't be underestimated. So an expectation of every single one of our leaders is, in fact, that there is mentoring that is occurring. We have a way, we have multiple ways in which we are able to evaluate the effectiveness of that mentoring from our individual uh, reviews with staff, small group meetings, 
discussions with our leadership. It is a pretty transparent process of leadership within our organization. And mentoring is one of those key elements. It ultimately starts at the top. And what responsibilities do I have as an individual in that organization to mentor, to guide? And my mentorship responsibilities aren't limited by those who directly report to me. Um, I have purposely, consciously over my career tried to reach through multiple levels of the organization to create those quiet moments of conversation with all our staff, create the opportunity for any one of our staff to have conversations with me on a periodic basis or an ongoing basis regarding their career, their experiences in their organization, and their aspirations uh, from a leadership perspective. That's the formal leaders. Every organization has informal leaders, thought leaders people that are incredibly influential but don't have a title associated with them. They are equally as important in mentoring and creating that environment in which people can succeed. That is a more difficult challenge because those informal leaders are frequently successful because they're not known, certainly by the formal leadership structures. They move in the ether of an organization, but they are in many ways no less influential in creating successful success at a unit level or throughout an entire organization. And so we always, as an organization, try to acknowledge and recognize the informal leaders, the thought leaders, the people that gently, in so many ways, move an organization forward successfully without a leadership title. They have enormous impact on their colleagues. And how do you encourage them without actually calling them out into the bright light of leadership? How do you encourage them to continue that good work? We, we talk a lot about that. Sam, along the lines of mentorship, does the Elliott have a formal mentorship program? And if, if not, um, how, how does informal mentoring work and how do you encourage that? And have you seen either of those in prior, prior uh, organizations and are they effective? Is, is a formal mentorship program effective? So it's a couple of questions for you. Okay. <laughs> so we don't really have a formal mentorship program, um, but it, it is encouraged um, and expected by senior leaders to mentor. Um, in my role as VP of HR, I'm coaching and developing leaders and managers and other, doesn't matter what level of individual you are, it's, it's always an opportunity to improve. Um, you know, we co I coach managers on how to have a difficult conversation with somebody or... Um, how do you develop? How do you have career opportunities? Where do you want to go within your career? What is the next step? So each leader is is really encouraged to mentor. Unfortunately, we don't have um, a formal program, but I think informal mentoring is just as important, if not more important, than formal because you you develop various relationships, as Warren had said. It's it's you're taking people under your wing and helping them get where they want, even if it's sharing ideas, um, trying it trying to get from one point of your career to another point, or just you're, you're stuck or you just want to brainstorm with somebody. It's always having that open conversation. And sometimes, in my opinion, having not having it formal is actually more successful than having it formal. Okay. Uh, Warren, so working in a critical access hospital, which by definition means a smaller organization and, and a smaller internal talent pool, as well as coupled with typically a rural location, uh, which means a relatively smaller external talent pool in the immediate area. What are the challenges of building a bench of future leaders? And uh, is there a greater urgency to find internal talent and nurture it? Um, I'd say yes, there definitely is. And, and this is sort of ingrained in our culture at all levels about how every day 
we're educating our staff, we're educating each other about where we need to go, how we need to get there, and how we all need to do our jobs. Um, so we do it at all levels, and we have to, as I said, we want to promote from within. So we're always developing people. Everything I do in my day-to-day -day job is a role model. You want to try to show people how to teach, how to mentor, how to help people grow. And at our organization, it really doesn't matter if you're a housekeeper or you're the CEO um, or anywhere in between. Um, we allow people informally to say, you know, I'd really like, and this could be a secretary who says, I want to learn more. And she might get together with our HR director, uh, vice president of HR, and Georgina will say, yeah, I will be happy to mentor you. As she, as the two of them, figure out where this individual wants to grow in the organization. But each one of our managers um, and each one of our supervisors and each one of our senior managers all know that the development of the organization, the way our culture is going to evolve, is, is it's imperative upon them to teach, to grow, and to mentor all of our staff at every level um, because we are small. And the weakest link is going to have us you know, fail where we don't want to fail. So we got to make sure everybody is strong. Everybody gets brought up to the same level. So it, it's not formal. It's informal. We have to do it to survive. Um, but it's ingrained in our culture. Let me follow it's up. It's an with, expectation. Oh, sorry. Yep. Let me follow up with a, a, a question. You've recently established the North Country Hospitals Affiliation. So you now have an organization with four affiliated organizations. Is it going to, do you see any potential for, um, uh, leader development within within the affiliation, maybe some some economies for for bench strength development and crossover of leadership. Absolutely. Um, as we bring the system together, and we're probably six months into it now, we've got to find what I'll call um, system leaders who want to rise above the job they're doing today and take on responsibility within the system. And then we've got to find folks who want to backfill those individuals as we pull the system together from where we are now, four distinct hospitals, to one system, four sites. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there. We need to get into the process of evaluating who the strongest leaders are, who can take on the system role, who can move into those seats. And we are just at the infancy of, of, of working through those issues um, as we pull the system together. But we won't have a choice. I mean, you know, cultures are a very difficult thing to grow, and they evolve every day. And every time, good or bad, you bring someone in from the outside, it's going to help your culture change. Um, so if you can build from within, and these folks already know your culture, um, hopefully that culture can stay in the direction you want it. So we need to build a common culture among four hospitals, which is going to be a trick. And then we need to build the system at the same time. So... It'll be interesting. Well, hopefully, we'll get you back to talk about about it a year or two from now. So, can I add something? Yeah, absolutely, so please. I, one thing to keep in mind with succession planning is you're going to have, you know, we have four thousand employees. Warren has five hundred. The process for leadership development, you have twelve hundred, two thousand. The process for leadership development or succession planning is the same regardless of the size of the organization. It's really the number of, of employees you have to pull from, but the concept of it is exactly the same. And through the process, the other thing that I, I always try to keep in mind with the HR staff and also with our managers and, and above is there are some people who are fabulous at what they do, 
but they might not want to grow within the organization, but how can you keep them challenged in the role that they're in? Do they want to hone in their skills? What can they do to um, grow within their own position? So succession planning and, and development is not just about getting from one position to another. It's you know keeping, keeping the employees um, happy, keeping them satisfied, keeping them challenged in either their, their current role or growing within the organization. So it's not just the growth piece of it, but it's really making sure that people are happy and have the development that they, that they truly want for themselves in their career. All right, so here's one of my wonky questions. Um, so this one's for Kevin. Uh, in, in his biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson quotes Steve Jobs as saying, I've learned over the years that when you have really good people, you don't have to baby them. By expecting them to do great things, you can get them to do great things. The original Mac team taught me that A-plus players like to work together, and they don't like it if you tolerate B-grade work. And so when I interviewed you, uh, you said something that reminded me of that quote. And you said, I hire competent people. I provide them support, encourage them to take the risk, encourage them to think differently than me, to push me, cause me to see things differently than the way I currently see things. I tend to place competent people in the roles, align them around our principal, our, excuse me, our principal vision, our mission, our strategic objectives, and then I let them go. So you said, I want to highlight this, you said you hire competent people, um, but I suspect that's probably an understatement of what you're trying to do. Um, uh, and, and so you hear a lot in the talent management uh, literature about A players and B players and C players. So um, what do you look for when you're trying to hire your team members? Yeah, I started reflecting on that uh, question, Mark, and you know, um, as well as the uh, interview response that I gave you. And, and so I started just to write down some thoughts about, well, what do I look for when I hire someone? I actually just hired an executive just a few months ago um, and started to reflect on that process. Um, what was I looking for? Um, and immediately, the, and I started writing them down top of mind, and typically what comes top of mind frequently are some of your more important criteria. And one of the most important criteria for me as I start to think about this executive that I just recently hired had to do with the values that that individual had. On some level, um, it's a reasonable assumption that when you begin to hire executive talent, there's a, there's a presumed level of competence technical competence. They typically didn't get to where they got to um, uh, with, unless, you know, without some base level of uh, competence. Um, it's a consideration that we try to parse out, becomes a little bit more intensive consideration when we move more into the clinical technical fields in terms of trying to ascertain what degree of competence an individual has. But at the senior executive level, it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. It is the values that this individual brings. And that becomes particularly important for me, and I think probably for many people in this room and, and leading other organizations. We are an incredible, in an incredible period of um, volatility, great uncertainty, uh, whether it's within our country or within the businesses that we operate. And in those periods of uncertainty, ultimately what continues to drive, toward, what can, supports your drive toward doing the right thing are the values that you bring. And so I try to ascertain those values out of the gates. Um, not only the, the values that they bring in their professional world, but how are those values formed in their personal life, their, their life story? 
I'm very interested in their life story. And if it doesn't come forward in an interview process, there isn't a second interview. We are who we are sitting here today largely because of our life stories. So values become important for me. Uh, Warren alluded to culture. We, we are, as leaders, in some ways, we're, we're, we're carrying a culture forward to a second to our successors. And we, me personally, I look at individuals coming into our organization uh, and trying to ascertain how will they fit into what I believe our culture is and how will they ultimately, in some ways, uh, affect that culture at a leadership level. Most people who participate in, inter with, in an interview with me, they typically the interviews last about three hours or longer. And it's a conversation about them. And I'm always trying to sense, well, how will they carry on this conversation with 2,000 other people in this organization? So that be that's a really important consideration for me. Peripheral vision, which we um, talk a lot about. Some people may be referred to it as being able to see over the horizon. In our days, all of us here, sometimes all you see is what's immediately in front of you, whether you're a student, the next exam, the next class period, or whether you're a CEO, a budget issue, or a regulatory issue, whatever it might be. But the ability to gain some altitude and see just a little bit over the horizon or a little bit further around the corner is really an important attribute. It's what you don't see that will disrupt you and it's what you don't see that could potentially be the opportunity missed. So I try to ascertain that. What do they see that I don't see? Peripheral vision, being able to see over the horizon. Communication skills are, in my way of thinking, one of the most important criteria for executive success. And so whether they're oral or whether they're written, the ability to communicate to people is so critical. And, and it's whether it's with your Twitter handle or anything else, at the end of the day, you've got to create a compelling vision or reason for someone to go to a different place. You have to. I don't care whether it's just your, your senior management team or it's an entire organization, in the case of the North Country, trying to create an, a, a vision, the ability to see a different future and causing people to want to go there. Warren spends a large part of his day, I would surmise, communicating about that vision. That is really an important consideration. Experience in life we've talked about, leading change we've talked about, and being able to embrace ambiguity. And we're, we'll probably get to that a little bit later on in our discussions. It, and there's a great reference uh, describing the environment that we're in. It's called VUCA, V-U-C-A. It's volatile, it's uncertain, it's ambiguous and it's complex, actually kind of reversed it. And that's our, that's our work. That is, that's our work every day. If you can't em embrace that, it's going to be a very, very difficult life as a leader. I don't care what industry you're in. Sam, when I, I've interviewed as Dean for our reference, I've interviewed about 40 senior healthcare executives. And, and one of the questions I typically ask is, uh, you know, what leadership lesson did you learn the hard way? And very often, I'd say a lot of them come back and say, I hired the wrong person. Um, I was either rushing to hire or some reason I didn't, I didn't follow my gut and I hired the wrong person. So how do you go about helping managers avoid making that mistake? Um, I ask, I push back and I ask difficult questions. Um, we interviewed probably five or six months ago, we were interviewing an um, Two, we had two final candidates for an executive position. 
and we go through panel interviews and one-on-one -on -one interviews. So we had um, a group of directors who interviewed these two candidates. And in the end, when we were talking about the candidates, they said, well, we liked this about this candidate, we liked that about that candidate, but neither one really fit. What they were trying to do is piece the two people together to make a whole person. And I was listening to this, and finally I said, we're hiring the wrong person. We can't make this decision, and we should really start from scratch because, you know, are you, are you looking to mold the person into what you want them to be? Do they really fit the bill? Culture is absolutely imperative. You have people, if, if you don't fit the culture, you know, you can learn, you can develop, you can acquire the knowledge, but you either fit in the culture or you don't. And a lot of this is asking the difficult questions and saying, am I hiring the right person? I do this for a living and I, you don't always get it right. You do, you know, you interview somebody, you have a great conversation, this is the person, and then they show up to work and two months later, you're looking at them like, who, who were you? Because you're not the person that I interviewed. We're laughing because those of you who have interviewed have actually done that. Um, so it's really looking at the, at the big picture and asking yourself the tough questions and pushing back. And it's not just even the executives. It's I encourage the recruiters on my team to challenge the managers when they're looking to make a hiring decision that they're on the fence about. Why are you on the fence? What is, what is the hesitancy? Do you need to bring that person back to interview again to hone in on some of the things that you're just not feeling right about? Um, do you nail it every time? You don't. But when you really push back and ask yourself and, and, and challenge each other with the difficult questions, that helps narrow in uh, to, to hopefully get a, a hire um, that is a really good fit for the organization. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask Warren one more question, and then we'll open it up to uh, the audience for questions. So my microphone assistants, if you could come up now and see Andy to get the, the mobile mics. We're going to have uh, two uh, of our students are going to be carrying mobile mic. So if you want to ask a question of the panel after Warren gives his response here, uh, just raise your hand and they'll come to you. Uh, that way we can we can make sure everybody can hear you and we can also capture your comment on the recording. So uh, Warren, uh, another wonky question for you. Uh, Cisco CEO uh, John Chambers once said that a world-class engineer with five peers can outproduce 200 regular engineers. Um, there is probably some truth to that because the work of engineers, which is designing and coding, can be you just you produce it and then you just start replicating it um, at near zero cost. Is this true in healthcare and in management? And what's your thoughts on an A performer? What is that, uh, and and how contextual is that grading? Wow, academia. I yelled at Merrill. Feel free to morning. answer the question or or anything um, else you want to answer. <laughs> Anything else I want to answer? Let's think about it. So grading, I try not to grade, right? We all probably mentally grade, but I don't see an advantage to that. As we heard earlier, and when I think about the jobs we all do in healthcare, um, sorry to say this to the professors in this room and my colleagues, but we're not Healthcare is not rocket science. It is complex, but it's not rocket science. And it really boils down to relationships, right? It's how we relate to each other as a team. It's how we relate with our patients. It's how we relate to our communities. So if you can instill within every level of the organization the fact that they're a teammate, the fact of some common relationship skills that they need to have, the fact that 
you know, one of my favorite statements is, just pretend it's your mother and you're going to do the right thing. You can build your culture and everybody's going to want to step up. Now, I will agree with Sam that some folks don't want to step up and they want to stay in the position they're in. That's fine as long as they do it in a way that provides excellent patient experience, right? They can stay there, but they've got to step their game up in that role. But everybody else can step up. So when I think about the earlier concept of uh, how many engineers you need, healthcare is a team sport, right? We need them all. Or we're not going to be able to fulfill the tasks. On the nursing unit, you need a certain amount of nurses to be able to accomplish the tasks for the day based on your census. So I don't think it applies. Um, but what does apply is this concept of it's a team sport. We got we to gotta make sure everybody knows they're an extremely effective member of the team, whether they're the receptionist or the housekeeper, but they provide an important role to that experience. And if you teach that at every level, everybody rises up. There's going to be some folks who actually choose that this is not the organization they want to be at. We're running too hard. Maybe we're trying to press them in relationship development that they're not comfortable with, and that's okay. I always say to my managers, well, that's okay. They can go visit our competitive hospital. They don't need to be here. Um, you, you want everybody to be on the bus, right? So I don't believe in that other stuff, okay. but I would... I actually happen to agree with you, but... All right, thank you. <laughs> not too right. many people do. I, I don't think... I personally don't think it applies in management and healthcare, it's, it's, it's a unique thing. Okay. It was a trick question. It was a trick question, see? All right, All right um, so questions from the audience. We've got about 40 minutes left, and I'd like to open it up to you all for questions for our panel. And if not, I've got more. Oh, we've got people in the back. Okay, so we've got one. Any? Anyone else? We'll line them up that way. Okay, and we've got over here Bridget. Thank you, Emily. Okay, I'm Jim Lewis from UNH, and question in regard to all the students in the room. Uh, do you have any advice or wisdom or guidance for, for them who are embarking on a career and probably hope to be the bench strength and then move from that into a more senior role that you've been talking a lot about? So any words of wisdom for all these good people? Thank you. I'll go first. Um, my words of wisdom would be get your foot in the door. Find a mentor, somebody, not necessarily your boss, but maybe, and constantly, constantly network among that institution, but most importantly, continue to volunteer for taking on new assignments at every opportunity so that institu institution can see your skills and so they get to know you. Because if you're in a bigger institution, you need to be really visible. If you're in a smaller institution, you still need to be really visible. And the way you get visibility is exposure. Volunteering for things, volunteering for assignments, volunteering for committees. Um, and that's sort of how I grew in this process. Um, I would agree. It's visibility. In, in our organization, we offer a lot of internships. Um, and if you have an opportunity to do that, I would absolutely take advantage of it. Some of our internships are paid and some are not. But it's when I have an internship within HR, I have them do a rotation because people will say, well, I want to be in HR. What area would you like to do? I have no idea. So we do a stint in recruiting in, uh, with the business partners to experience employee relations in HRIS in our comp department so they can really see 
all areas. And, you know, when you go through that process, you can see what areas of HR is of interest, what is not of interest, or, oh my God, I really don't want to get into HR. Um, but it's really, it's asking questions. And the other thing is having patience. There's a lot of people that come into an organization and, you know, six months down the road and say, well, I want to be the manager. Um, I started as an HR assistant and I worked my way up um, for having mentors, for being in the right place at the right time, for being visible and volunteering. And, but it's also having patience to get to the next level and to, to experience and really master what you're doing. Um, but take it all in. Just be a sponge and, and really take advantage of all of the opportunities that an organization will, um, will provide for you. A couple of thoughts, um, and thanks for posing that question, Professor Lewis, because it's a question that I'm frequent, is frequently posed to me by my in, summer interns that come in from, from UNH. And I'll say the same thing. And I kind of reflected even on my own career when I was asked to be CEO. I think I was 28 or 29, and, and I thought about it for a little while. I said, sure, I can do that, not knowing whether I could or not. And I encourage all the students that come through, all the interns that come through, to not be fearful, not to be fearful of failure at all. Um, you're not going to progress as an individual or as an organization without encountering failures, just not going to. Um, if you can, it's easy to say and much harder to do, but if you can overcome that fear of failure, the opportunities that are created for you are absolutely amazing. Warren alluded to the fact of volunteering, and I say that to my students all the time, is don't say no. Always offer the opportunity, I can do that. You may not be able to understand fully what it means when you said, I can do that. But I can assure you, you're all smart enough, you'll figure it out. That's really important to take that personal risk. And then finally, is as I alluded to earlier, your communication skills. No one will really know how good you are or how capable you are unless you can begin to articulate that. They may see the work, but if the work is not first given to you or the opportunity is not first given to you, how will they know who you are unless you can communicate who you are? And so communication skills, not being fearful of failure, embracing failure, and always be willing to say yes. Always be willing to take on one additional responsibility that makes you uncomfortable because you're not sure you can do it. Those are the things I always advise the interns that come through. Good morning, great panel, thanks. Um, Bridget Stewart from Elliott Health System. So I think you mentioned, Warren, that um, really this is a team sport that, you know, in terms of working together, it's a team sport. Could you speak to maybe, and I've heard some discussion and dialogue about leadership and mentoring for physicians. And I think in my role at Elliott, it's really important for me to work with physician leaders. Could you speak to the work that you do around physician leadership and development and some of your experience with regards to that? First off, how many physicians are in the room? Just curious. Um, <sighs> Remember, this is being recorded. I get that. <laughs> um, our physicians are obviously, you can't have a hospital without physicians. And as we think about the work we need to do, especially the work we need to do in the North Country, and developing some kind of clinically integrated network among four medical staffs, among four medical leaders, we need to make sure we get them all up to the same kind of, uh, of standards of what they think their job is as a leader. And that is difficult. 
Um, sometimes folks who have an MD degree believe it's the top career degree you can have and you can do anything with it. And that's not always the case. They may not have the right fit. They may not have the right understanding of culture. They may not have the right approach um, to, to uh, leadership development and mentoring because that all needs to happen. Um, so what we do, we build our medical leaders. Um, there's officers and there's other medical leaders within the institution. Every year we try to take them out of the institution to get them educated about what it's like to be a medical leader. And by the time they rise to the president of the medical staff, they've probably been to four of these educational um, offerings where we go, I go with them, so we learn together, grow together, socialize together, and come back and implement together. And that helps our medical leaders get a better handle on what's going on in the environment because, you know, in the North Country, it's a pretty closed environment. And you need to see the world or hear about the world. Um, so we've been rather successful in that kind of development with our medical leaders. I'd say to you that within the four institutions that we have, some of our medical leaders have some formalized education like that, and some believe they know what they're doing. Um, we need to try, and we're going to try to pull this off before Thanksgiving, to try to get them all in the room and have a conversation of where we need to go. Um, but formal education, mentoring, um, having, having peers they can go to who do an exceptional job with medical leaders is another approach that we use. Um, but now we need to take it system-wide. So, um, so within our physician world, we have about a 1,000 physicians, um, employed and non-employed, those that have um, privileges. So we have a, a mixed bag of, of physicians. I totally agree um, with, um, and I say this all the time with all due respect to physicians, is it doesn't matter what initials you have surrounding your name you're still an employee and you still need to behave in a certain way. Um, and there are some physicians that aren't a fit for the culture and there are um, others that step up and are true um, leaders and help the organization move forward. Um, so we are actually holding physicians more accountable for interactions. We've just started um, having physician evaluations, which is new for them. Um, which provides them feedback and opportunity to step out of their comfort zone, be more visible, um, be on committees, um, and, and so forth. So we do, we don't provide formal, but we're moving towards that direction. Um, as you can tell from a lot of the things I said, a lot of what we do is informal, so we're, we're evolving to a more formal process with some of our development in, in all levels within the organization. But it's also holding physicians accountable and providing them with coaching, mentoring, and opportunities to, to hone in on some of their um, leadership skills. Kevin, you spoke to one specific person you were mentoring to be an executive, but what about physicians in general? We, um, if you think about it, it is a team sport, as Warren alluded to, um, and the increasing pressures that are being placed on health systems um, really require not only formal leadership in terms of actual individuals holding leadership positions, but also the clinical leaders, the informal leaders, the team leaders, individuals who are responsible for orchestrating resources across multiple settings of care, whether it's in the hospital, whether it's in the outpatient setting or in the home care setting. We are knee deep right now uh, with the new executive that I had brought on who happens to be a physician 
um, in going through a process of identifying emerging leaders within our medical community. Um, who are they? What are their aspirations? Where might they be able to fit in to advance our mission? Um, and trying to profile what additional skills they want to and need to acquire. And so we are in the middle of that right now. Uh, and we'll be interesting to see what emerges from that. We, it was, I was just at a, a committee meeting just a couple of months ago. Um, and we had, a large part of the committee discussion revolved around generational differences in leadership. And generational differences in the way um, uh, clinicians uh, view uh, care being provided uh, in, the, in the healthcare setting. And uh, one of the physicians that was invited to, to come, a relatively young woman, um, uh, was so art, and she was a hospitalist, uh, was so articulate about um, generational views and how she views, and she's, well, as I said, young, she's probably about 34, 33, um, and how she views her interaction with her more senior colleagues and, and the differences and how those manifest themselves at the bedside and in patient interactions. She was so articulate, um, and in, in her discussions, I detected something. So I followed up with her. It was maybe about two weeks uh, uh, later. I said, let's go get a cup of coffee, Ginger. And she goes, why? I, said, I just, just want to have a conversation with you. That's all. And turns out she has deep leadership aspirations. And so from there, she has been tasked uh, to work uh, within our credentialing function in our organization. She wants to begin graduate school. She's, um, she's expected to deliver a baby, I think, this week or next week. Once that's done, she's going to start graduate school and ultimately wants to um, assume a leadership position that melds classic executive leadership with clinical leadership. So those, those gems, those, those, you know, those diamonds in the rough, they're everywhere. How do you identify them as a leader? It could be just a casual encounter at a single committee meeting or even in a social setting. It's amazing what people want to do when they're given the opportunity to find their voice. We have another question, question up here. And if you're thinking about a question, raise your hand so we can get the mic prepositioned. Hi, uh, Steve Onan, the Hospital Association. Um, Kevin, I was really intrigued by your comment in terms of sort of looking up over the horizon, thinking out in of what's in front of you. And I think in healthcare today, in lots of different fields, that's probably one of our biggest challenges, um, given the pace of change and the pace of, of activity. There's so much focus on what's right in front of us. I think former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger called it, you know, the urgent driving out the important. Um, how do you facilitate that in your organizations, within your leadership, you know, as, as you try and help build strength? Ben Strength, how do you build that up in your organization so that people understand they have not only an obligation to do the things that are right in front of them, but also to, to look ahead, to, to, to look over the horizon, as you said. Sure. Um, I'm un uniquely, um, uh, you know, benefited or maybe cursed, depending on your view, is I thrive in ambiguity and uncertainty, unpredictability. It is the environment that enlivens me. Uh, and really gets me jazzed about what I do. And, and so the uncertainty that looms in all our futures is something that uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, individually as well as on, on behalf of the organization. 
I see that as opportunities. There's no question about it. The uncertainties create absolute threats to the legacy systems that we have all um, uh, managed. And in fact, a fair, I think a fair part of our healthcare delivery system is going to be in a material way disrupted, requiring new skill sets, which is part of what we're talking about here this morning. That I don't find fearful. Uh, and the, it, and, but part of the challenge that I have is to try to find what are the new tools to deal with that disruption and those new opportunities to deal with what's coming over, over the horizon. What I frequently find myself challenged with is an organization that parts of it may not embrace that uncertainty. You know, we talk about not being f uh, uh, fearful of failure. I can't tell you how many failures I've had in my career, many. But I continue to always look at that future of uncertainty as continuing opportunity, maybe to fail again, but certainly to succeed. But I recognize, and, and I think maybe there might even be a few of my colleagues here uh, this morning, I'm not sure, that part of my challenge is to continue to propel leadership to um, embrace that uncertainty, to embrace that um, uh, opportunity, but also recognize the failure opportunities that exist out there. And it is hard to drive an organization into ambiguity. It is really, really hard. We have a lot of discussions with my senior management group in terms of the approach avoidance. Everyone is enamored with pick a technology, telehealth. What a great thing. How that will in, you know, uh, you know, change the way healthcare is consumed by time and by place. But what does that mean for me? What does that mean in terms of what I manage and what I do day to day? Will that take away what I do day to day? Will a whole part of my business go away and be disrupted? Quite possibly. So what I find challenging in my role is to acknowledge people's desire to stay put in some cases. The, the comfort and the familiarity in a world that is really pretty crazy right now. I rec no question about it. It is, it is comforting with what you know and with what you're familiar with. But as a leader, I have a responsibility to pull them into the unknown and the organization. I have that absolute responsibility. And that is one of my biggest challenges as a leader, day to day. How do I do that? How do I do it without losing an organization or people that are re relying on me, that want to follow me? How do I not leave them behind? Some cases you may. So that is, that is one of my challenges um, about seeing over the horizon. It is the joy of my job thinking about what potentially might be over the horizon. It is the challenge of my job to get an organization closer to that horizon. When you talk about the horizon, you've, you need to paint the picture. You need to tell the story of where you think the institution is going and why it needs to be there. And you need to tell it over and over and over again. Because you've got to build a burning platform for why people need to do something different tomorrow than they did today. So it, it goes back to the communication and the relationship building. So if you tell the story over and over again, and actually they see that the, the system is positioned in the right way, they will follow once they understand what the burning platform is. But you've got to convince them, A, things are changing, B, this is where we need to head and why, and C, we need to be all in this together and then you can have success. <clears throat> I think telling people the why in anything that you do is really important, especially in time of change. And you need your senior leadership team to embrace it and be the champions because if they're questioning it and have concerns about it, everyone else is going to see that and they're going to question it. So it's really 
over communicating. And that's what I talked to our senior leadership team about. Um, and, you know, if you've read the newspaper, we are in a lot of change within the Elliott. Um, and so it's keeping us united and keeping us communicating um, and making sure that we're being transparent and being visible and answering employee questions and leadership questions to make sure that everybody, everybody understands the why behind what we're doing or not doing. I think that the communication is critical. We have another question over here. Yes, I'm Carrie Nolte. I'm a faculty member in the nursing department here at UNH. Um, and I, I think, I hope that my question serves as a good follow-up um, with the um, specific charge of um, health systems addressing more population health, community involvement, um, which I think in most systems is a shift from kind of acute care focus. Um, I'm curious about the talent that you're recruiting um, and whether that um, within your systems is something you see as a separate talent to engage the community and focus on population health, or if it's something all of your practitioners should be well-versed in and involved with. Um, that's, a, that's a great question to contemplate because we are, we are currently um, deepening our focus on population health as it's kind of popularly referred to. And I think there are probably maybe some nurses um, in the room and some other clinicians in the room who probably in the essential elements of their training understood what population health truly meant um, in many, many ways. And as we know, and it's frequently been studied, you know, the, the vast majority of health status and the outcomes associated with your health have nothing to do with what we do in healthcare per se, the social determinants of health. And certainly some of the students here who have gone through UNH, if you're seniors here, you understand that premise. What is it, maybe 20% of health status is actually affected by what health systems do. And I always marvel at that. Uh, given the trillions of dollars that we spend, and one might question that the trillions of dollars we spend have no impact on health status. So when I think about population health and the accountability that health systems are increasingly taking responsibility for, some of that is driven just by, I think in some cases, uh, the changes in the social compact that has, has existed between states and their population, the federal government and the population, and just a changing of thinking about what health means. Um, and we are in that process of rethinking that as well as an organization in terms of how do we ultimately view ourselves differently and in our, in, in our relationship to that other 80% that affects health status? We're not going to affect necessarily, you know, the DNA of any one individual that's going to, in a fairly significant way, predict their disease status. We're not going to affect that. But we will certainly have the ability to work in the community in which that disease status uh, occurs. And how does that ultimately impact the way we create pathways into that community to care for those individuals. The types of people we are hiring in that way increasingly have a lot to do with data analytics. You know, we frequently talk about big data and the ability to understand the trajectory of health in any one population, any one community, or any one disease category. And we are data rich, we are not necessarily intellectually rich concerning that data. So we are hiring or will be hiring data analysts that look at um, health, uh, the you know the claims associated with health consumption and look at uh, various public health indicators um, uh, for our population. We are 
increasingly focused on clinicians who case manage, whose role is to transcend just acute care, um, uh, the acute care setting, but who can move seamlessly between the acute care setting, a med surge bed, to a physician's office, primary care or specialty care, to accompany someone on a home care visit within our home care organization, or who has great adroitness with uh, the Apple Watch and the personal health monitoring that occurs. Because what we, what I believe and what I think our organization is increasingly believing is, as I stated earlier, the consumption of healthcare is being shifted uh, from the legacy systems. It's no longer going to be time dependent or space dependent. It's no longer going to be dependent on if you have a physician's office that is open from 9 to 5 in the afternoon. Health happens. Disease happens regardless of that. So think about the skill sets that are going to be required for that. And what will they look like? Who, who are the people that we're going to hire? Those are the questions that we're asking, but we're beginning to see the early manifestation of that when we look at the people we're bringing into our organization right now with different sets of eyes that are willing, that are capable of looking inward and looking outward and looking at the patient's experience as one that really has to be seamless across the entire continuum of care. It, you know, I, I clearly see that when I meet with my HR staff and see the types of people we're, we're hiring, or I have conversations with leaders in other parts of our organization in terms of what they're wishing they could hire in terms of skill sets. It's very different. My answer is yes. So it'll have to be the internal people as well as some external people, as Kevin has explained. But all of our clinicians, um, whether they're nurses or physicians who are taking care of the patients, have got to focus on population health as well. But where we sit, it's not just our institutions that need to help with population health. So I think about the North Country. I think about we have four hospitals. We have FQHCs. We have nursing homes. We have home health agencies. We've got to get them all working together. Um, to improve population health. And as Kevin says, we get, you know, we can only affect 20% of it, but we're responsible for 100% of it. And, you know, just this last week, we started rolling out our strategic initiative, and one of them is to get our population in the North Country out of the basement. All due respect, they are the sickest folks in this state. So our premise is, how do we get them in 10 to 15 years out of the basement? That will be the proof that our system truly is working. Um, and that will be the evidence that it was the right thing to do to pull the system together. But it's going to be a combination of the folks we have and the folks we need to bring in under this big tent to accomplish that. Sam, any thoughts from an HR perspective on hiring for the for this new function? You know, it's it's difficult because it's it's evolving. It's trying to figure out. You know, you have your your population of employees that you have now and trying to get them to move into the mindset and all of the new new candidates and, and people out there with the new skill set. And it's really trying to put all of the pieces together. It's it's a moving target and we haven't we haven't quite nailed it. I think I saw another. Okay, we've got one here and then one. Yes, hello, I'm Liz Mary. I'm on the board of trustees for LRG Healthcare. And um, two thirds of my question was answered by the excellent question before. So I'll pose this a little differently. In terms of succession and leadership development, how do you get the voice of the patient there? How do you make sure that the leaders that are currently in your organizations are tied into the community, the aspirations of their patients, how they see uh, what their needs are for healthcare in the future? How do you tie that into some of the learnings and, and criteria you use for leadership? So at, at Elliott, we have a PFAC 
um, committee, which is a patient and family committee. Um, and it's an advisory group um, that get together um, on a monthly basis to give us feedback of um, what patients are looking for, um, their experience within the hospital, what they hear, what the community hears. Um, we also do a lot of community surveys. And um, we have patient surveys uh, through Prescani that we get. And it's a great, it's a great opportunity to look at um, what we're doing well and where we have areas of opportunity. And it's hearing directly from the patients. Um, we also have a patient advocate. Um, and they meet with patients. Um, lots of times it's to give feedback of, of areas that they didn't have a good experience or that they have suggestions to do something differently based on their own um, experience or that of a family member. So we're involved a lot with the community and our patients and we take their feedback to heart and we use that um, as part of our strategic planning uh, going forward. I was thinking about that question. I don't know if I have a good answer for that um, in terms of direct patient um, input into succession planning. I think about that, but maybe in, in, a, in a little bit of a different way as I've kind of thought about it, in some ways maybe it's about the patient, but perhaps more importantly it's about the community of which there is a subset of patients that they come from there. And as I think about succession planning, whether it's my own successor or any other parts of our organization, and I think about our mission, I think about the healthcare needs that exist in our community. We're required as an organization to periodically assess those needs uh, by federal law. Um, and, and we've just completed our community needs assessment in, 2000, uh, in 2016. And as I was going through that and trying to understand how much of that forms a blueprint for our future year strategies and tactics. And, and I just started thinking about it and reflecting on your question. And you could really transpose that to say, well, how much does that serve as the blueprint uh, for our successors? Because these are long-standing needs in the community. They're not year to year, certainly not in this state. And they're long-standing needs. And in many ways, the voice of the community in that health needs assessment, there were many thousands of people that were surveyed in that, forms the blueprint of ultimately all our successors. How do we carry that forward? But, and that's, that, that's the best answer I could give you right now. It's a great question. We do both of those activities in the North Country. The other thing we have been doing at Littleton, and I'm not actually sure if it's going on at the other three institutions, is um, our, our clinical managers are required to sort of do patient rounding as part of their day. So whether it's in the nursing unit, the rehab unit, physician practices, um, they are required to go out there and listen to our patients, to hear what hear how their experience is, hear how our institution can serve them better. Um, and while we get some great information from the traditional, we get some real-time information from that activity so we can improve that day on things they bring to our attention. Um, so that has been a very successful way for us. And, and quite frankly, patients love to be asked questions. And it's, it's just a great way to find out how we've served them and what we can do better. So we have a, another question in the back. Yeah, Peter Gosling. Um, <clears throat> we heard at the beginning of the session a couple stories about, um, from, I think from Kevin and, and, and Warren, about developing people within their organization. And Kevin talked about spending years developing a physician leader and Warren uh, as well, uh, developing future CEOs. Um, 
and it it may seem somewhat counterintuitive, but you you spend all those years, make that investment, and then they leave your organization. You both clearly see that as a success, and I just wonder if you would comment on the impact. Clearly, there's a positive impact on the person that's impacted, that's going somewhere else and and getting a promotion, if you will. But what's the positive impact on your organization and also you as a leader and the image you have as a leader within your organization having done that? Um, So the last part of the question I'll answer first, what is the image? So the image is we as leaders spend time developing our bench and developing people who can take our position. That sends a really strong message to that culture of that institution that we are there to help everybody grow. So I think the image is unbelievable, and it it only enhances the the culture that you're trying to develop. Um, With regard to the downside of them leaving the institution, the way I look at it is the last 7 to 12 years that they've been there growing, um, they've helped develop our culture. Um, They've helped develop managers underneath them. They've helped our organization move forward in the way we needed to. Um, so it's a win, and then it's a personal win when, when I say they graduated and, and have um, gotten a CEO, a CEO position. Um, so I look at it as a win all the way around, even though they're losing, leaving the institution. would probably echo um, those comments as well. Um, you know, it, maybe it's more of a, a personal uh, level of satisfaction that someone who I work closely with is in another part of the country, uh, West Coast, and, you know, will maybe have an impact um, uh, there. It's a loss for our organization in some ways, yet the, the opposite side of that view of a loss is it, was a, it, it hopefully will be a gain because the experiences that I had mentoring and working with this individual, promoting him into an executive uh, position, having him leave uh, because of family circumstances, um, created the opportunity then for me to look at um, hiring his replacement, which I just did. From the uh, external search, an individual coming from a different organization, but the experiences that I had and the insights that I gained in working with the individual that left, I think created a framework for the person that I hired. Um, so hopefully uh, those experiences will be a gain uh, with the person I hired. He's still with me two months later, so I guess we're, <laughs> we're making progress. The last thing I would say, if, if you think about a mentor-mentee relationship, there's a time, all due respect, for when that person needs to move on because they've outgrown that mentoring relationship and they need to be on their own. They need to blossom outside of the organization. Um, and and Tied to that is, um, I always look for folks when I'm thinking about hiring in our organization who have had multiple hospital experiences, because every hospital is different, every culture is different. So as you all think about your careers, um, you you will be best served by continuing to move up in the organization, and quite frankly, I hate to say this, out of an organization and continuing to move up because you will grow tremendously by learning each of those cultures and how they're different, because every hospital you will learn something new at. 
I want to interject here. When I came up to Littleton to interview Rob Mock, who was one of the men, gentlemen that I mentioned, um, I, I happened to bump into Warren in his office when I was going to talk with Rob, and uh, and he and he said something to the effect of, um, uh, "I'm ho- uh, uh, Rob's great. I'm hoping to get him out of my organization." And I'm and I, I sat there. And I'm, it was something to that effect, Maybe. though. And I'm like, "Oh shoot, is this a bad thing that I'm coming to talk to this guy?" So obviously not, but. Um, it's time for kids out of the house. It's time for, you know, <laughs> folks to grow. And the only way they can grow, quite frankly, is to go to another institution because they've learned what they could at your institution. Sam, let me spin this slightly differently. When is it good for an organization to let an A player go? When they're ready. And and I think it goes to what you just said is, you know, kids, kids leave the house and an A player needs to leave the organization. And Tate, I'm going to pick on you for a minute, if you don't mind, is Tate is a perfect example is he um, started his career um, within the Elliott and he advanced within the Elliott and now he he left and is a COO at another hospital. And we're excited for Tate. He's he's flourishing. And, and if he were to stay within Elliott, you know, you you look at going back to what I said earlier, is even though you have individuals in your organization that might not want to grow within the organization, but want to thrive in the position that they're in, at some point, if you have someone who is really thriving and wants to move move up and learn more and advance in their career, and you've stifled them, that's a bad experience, and they're going to leave anyway. But you want to be, it's a win-win to help develop them and grow, and then sort of set them free to the next to the next um, adventure and the next move in their career. And I think that, you know, Tate, you're, you're a success to that story. So sorry we, to put you on the spot, but. We've got about three minutes left. I want to end on one last question um, uh, to each of the panel. So maybe a one-minute answer from each of you. And so start. I'm going to start with Sam. Uh, this is my last wonky question. Oh, I knew uh, it was in the book, How Google Works, Google execs Schmidt and Rosenberg say in the hiring process, Google leaders look for Googliness. Uh, and, and how they, they define this as, we want to get a feel for what makes a candidate unique. We also want to make sure that this is the place they'll thrive. So we look for signs around their comfort with ambiguity, bias to action, and collaborative nature. So uh, to Sam, if Google has Googliness, uh, defined as I just said, what is Elliotness? And how does that translate into org- the organization creating a culture of high performance? And your answer must include the word Googliness in it. Okay. For each of you. So you just want us to say Googliness. I just really want them all to say that, yeah. So there you go, Googliness. So I think, you know, if you look at our mission statement, it's um, inspire wellness, heal our patients, and serve with compassion in every interaction. And it is all about the patient experience, whether you're a clinical person, a non-clinical person, it's, it's really, you know, having the patient come in the door, meeting with the receptionist and every single person that they have um, an interaction with in their experience within the hospital, whether you're a family member visiting somebody or an actual patient. Um, and that is our Elliotness, is the true patient experience. And ultimately, that's why you work in, in, in our institution. Kevin? I don't know if I can say Googliness. Um, uh, yeah, I did. You know, my 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 wife happened to go by the. T- I'm, I'm taking up a minute. I feel like it's a debate. My wife was going by the table and she happened to see your, your question set that I had highlighted in yellow, and she's like, "What the heck does that mean, Googliness?" So what it means for Exeter is maybe to kind of just kind of rephrase the question. When I interview someone, they ask me, "What is it like to work at Exeter?" 
I get that question a lot from physicians. Um, and, and it's not quite the 30-second you know, elevator speech. And probably two things that came to mind when I was thinking about Mark's um, question is the intimacy that exists in, in healthcare. Um, and I think that is particularly unique within our organization. Uh, there is a degree of codependency between ourselves and our patients and ourselves and colleagues. There's a degree of intimacy that is pal uh, you know, palpable. It's, it's really quite striking. Um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing uh, is the intellectual rigor. Uh, we're, our organization doesn't suffer um, people that are not performing at their highest level well. We just don't. And that's probably true of a lot of healthcare organizations and healthcare professionals. We aspire to be the best. We're overachievers in just about every walk of life. And so intimacy and, you know, this notion of being your very best, those are two things that um, I would probably describe as our Googliness. Warren, Googliness. I'm not playing along. <laughs> um, my answer goes back to what Kevin said earlier. When we think about people coming into our institution, we need to see if they're going to fit. Are they going to fit the culture? Is their personality, are their personalities going to fit the folks they're going to be working with? Um, so to me, it's a gut check and it's a fit check for the organization because um, we are striving for what they've talked about. The North Country way, as I need to say it now, um, but it really is all about fit because I'm sure they're going to bring the skill levels to the table. But will this be the right place for them? Because we want them there for the long term. So thank you, and uh, I'll I'll try again maybe later to get them to Good say luck. that. Yeah, okay. So uh, uh, we've got to close. So um, uh, we are at time. Uh, I hope you agree with me that I found three very unusual and interesting individuals to share uh, their experiences with me today, with us today, excuse me. So if you wouldn't mind joining with a round of applause. We're going to now take a half hour break and resume at 1030. Um, there are, so I have a task for the executives in the audience. And that is there are a large number of students uh, in here. And I would, I would like to task you to, to teach them a little bit about networking. I've told them not to clump together. And when I walked in this morning, they were all clumped together. So if you would help them um, learn a little bit about how it is to do some professional networking, we would deeply appreciate that. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.